So I'm uh, Nicholas Bornois again of Capital Inc. I'd like to welcome you all to this particularly exciting panel. Geopolitics, global commerce and shipping is one of the most relevant topics in shipping today. And we have with us uh, a, a group of global experts, actually a group of experts coming to us from all over the world, from Washington, from the UK, from Geneva, Cyprus, Athens, and of course, New York. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, our panelists for joining us, uh, and I'd like to thank John for moderating this panel for one more time. And uh, without any more delay, I will turn it over to him, and uh, this is uh, really a, a great panel and a great topic. Thank you, Nicholas. Thank you. Good morning, good afternoon to everybody who's, or good evening to everyone who's uh, watching. My name is John Keough. I'm a partner in the international law firm Clyden Co., I'm based in the New York office. And this panel this morning is a highly able and competent panel spread across the globe. We'll focus on the global impact of shipping based on three key factors. One, economic sanctions. Two, the crew repatriation crisis that shipping is seeing during the pandemic. And three, generally trade tariffs and some related environmental uh, concerns. Um, there are recent developments and associated challenges in each of these areas. And let me just briefly introduce our panel. You can see their bios on the website, but uh, we have Josh Mader from the US State Department. Josh is the Senior Sanctions Policy Coordinator in the Office of Sanctions Policy and Implementation. Mark O'Neill is with us. Mark is the CEO of Columbia Ship Management. Bud Dar is joining us as well from Geneva, but is the Executive Vice President for Maritime Policy and Government Affairs for MSC Group. Mike Salthouse from the North of England P&I, uh, the Global Director of Claims and also Chairman of the Sanctions Committee for the International Group of P&I Clubs, joins us with what is undoubtedly the best background I've seen in a while. And also with us is Eddie Valentis, the chairman and CEO of Pixis Tankers in Greece, a products tanker owner and operator. So with no further ado, let me, let me kick it off here, uh, Josh, by asking you if you could open up our discussion on sanctions. U.S. sanctions policy recently has been focusing on uh, global shipping, shipping and targeting compliance and uh, due diligence procedures and seeking to have the shipping community improve their due diligence practices uh, in order to achieve compliance. And this, the United States has been focusing on an increase in its maximum pressure campaign of the Iran sanctions, as well as in the Venezuelan sanctions. Um, there's been a snapback recently of the Iran sanctions uh, that just took place in September in light of the UN arms embargo expiring. There have also been some recent Iran banking sector sanctions. And in Venezuela, we've seen some broad sanctions with some uncertainty uh, across the enforcement front. Could you highlight for us, Josh, some of these significant changes on Iran, Venezuela, and, and perhaps give us some of the latest insight on the U.S. foreign policy perspective in these areas? 
Yeah, well, first, uh, thank you, John, for the introduction and for agreeing to referee this morning. And uh, also, let me start by thanking uh, Nicholas and Capital Link for the invitation to join uh, the discussions at this year's Maritime Forum. Uh, my fellow panelists are, are really experts in the maritime industry, and it's an honor to have the opportunity to speak alongside them uh, about U.S. economic sanctions and, and really the very real implications that they have to the work that you are all engaged in. Um, as John mentioned, I'm the Senior Sanctions Policy Coordinator in the Office of Economic Sanctions Policy and Implementation at the State Department. Our office uh, develops and implements sanctions uh, to counter threats to U.S. national security and foreign policy posed by illicit activities and terrorist organizations around the world. Um, and we frequently advise the Secretary of State on economic sanctions strategies uh, and, where possible, build international support, uh, both with government entities as well as the private sector for the implementation and enforcement of those sanctions. Um, before I dive into kind of the areas on Iran and Venezuela, John, that you highlighted, I'd like to just take a brief moment um, to really recognize the incredibly important role that you all play in keeping the global um, economy afloat, no pun intended, um, and that the decisions that the U.S. government makes, you know, whether through the imposition of enforcement and enforcement of sanctions, or through, I guess what I call the routine engagement uh, and dialogue uh, that we have with you, uh, sometimes on a daily basis, you know, those decisions are not taken lightly or in vain. And we understand that the impact that they have on your daily business and the industry at large. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to kind of getting into those discussions uh, with both my fellow panelists and, and with the uh, members participating in the audience this morning. To your first point, John, on um, Iran and the snapback provisions that were just uh, implicated through the United Nations, um, just as a brief kind of summary of what happened on a August 20th, uh, the U.S. notified the president of the Security Council on Iran's significant non-performance uh, with respect to its JCPOA commitments. That notification triggered a 30-day process leading to the snapback of previously terminated U.N. sanctions, which became effective uh, on September 19th. This means that the provisions of six previous Security Council resolutions uh, that were terminated when Resolution 2231 was implemented in 2016 are now back in full effect. The U.S. government took this action because in addition to Iran's failure to perform its JCPOA-related commitments, the Security Council failed to really extend the U.N. arms embargo on Iran, you know, which had been in place for, for in many various forms for nearly 13 years. That inaction would have paved the way for Iran to buy a wide array of conventional weapons uh, on October 18th when that embargo was set to expire. And we took the necessary uh, steps to ensure that that couldn't happen. Uh, the UN Security Council resolutions are adopted by a vote and have been since the Council was formed in 1945. Uh, there's been no vote to change the text of Resolution 2231. And our decision to exit the JCPOA um, has absolutely no bearing on our rights under Resolution 2231 in the UN. I know that can be a confusing point. The JCPOA really is a non-binding political uh, arrangement that, while it's referenced in the Security Council Resolution 2231, is separate from it. And our decision to exit the JCPOA only affected the JCPOA. And it did not and could not change any of the text or meaning of Resolution 2231 uh, within the UN. 
since the JCPOA really is a non-binding political arrangement, participants, including the United States, were free to exit it at any time without violating international law. And Resolution 2231 doesn't obligate the US to participate in the JCPOA. However, 2231 contains binding legal obligations, and we expect all UN member states to fully comply with their obligations to implement these measures. In addition to the arms embargo, uh, these measures in, in, include restrictions such as the ban on Iran engaging in enrichment and reprocessing related activities, the prohibition on uh, ballistic missile testing and development by Iran, and sanctions on the transfer of nuclear and missile related technologies to Iran, among many others. And if the UN member states fail to fulfill their obligations to implement these sanctions, we as the United States are prepared to use our domestic authorities to impose consequences um, for those failures and ensure that Iran does not reap the benefits of UN prohibited activity. On September 21st, we imposed sweeping measures to, pre, uh, to pressure Iran's nuclear, missile, and conventional arms uh, efforts. Uh, these uh, included uh, the implementation of a new executive order, EO13949, which blocks property uh, of persons with respect to the conventional arms activities of Iran. Uh, the EO blocks the property and interest in property of, of those uh, that contribute to the supply, sale, or transfer, uh, which is particularly relevant to this audience. Um, of conventional arms to and from Iran, as well as those who provide technical training, financial support and services, and other associated uh, uh, related activities to these arms. The first designations under the authority, which were also announced uh, on September 21st, uh, are Iran's Ministry of Defense and Armed Forces Logistics, or MADAFL, as we've called it, Iran's Defense Industrial uh, and Industries Organization and its director, uh, as well as Nicolas Maduro of Venezuela. And I'll come back to Venezuela a little bit later on. For nearly two years, the corrupt Iranian and Venezuelan regime you know, have really flouted the UN arms embargo. And the two states have continued to exchange defense delegations uh, and have spent significant resources to develop plans, uh, which really have likely progressed uh, to include the sale of arms. The designation of Maduro is completely consistent with our policy, you know, that anyone who attempts to trade arms with Iran risks incurring sanctions. And as I mentioned, I'll come back to that in just a minute, but I would like to discuss um, an additional action that the U.S. took just last week um, with respect to imposing additional sanctions on Iran's financial sector. Uh, there's no question that the totality of the sanctions that we have imposed are really the toughest ever and are curbing the Iranian regime's ability to engage in malign activities around the world. Um, the Iranian regime will have increasingly greater difficulty fueling uh, its destabilizing activities without the money flowing in from outside its borders. And on October 8th, the administration took action to sever one of the regime's largest remaining revenue streams uh, by targeting core facilitators uh, within the Iranian banking institution or the financial sector. Um, in support of this goal, we identified the financial sector of Iran pursuant to section uh, 1A of Executive Order 13902, and that authorizes the Secretary of the Treasury in consultation with the Secretary of State to sanction any entity or individual determined to operate in that sector. So it's, it's, it's quite broad. Concurrently, the Treasury Department san uh, sanctioned 18 major Iranian banks, 
Uh, 17 were sanctioned pursuant to EU 13902 for operating in the Iranian financial sector. And one bank was designated uh, under the Counterproliferation Authority Executive Order 13382. The implication of this action is increased risk for individuals and entities that choose to do business with the sanctioned banks, uh, sanctioned banks um, or persons operating in the Iranian financial sector, uh, unless those activities are subject to existing exceptions, authorizations, or waivers from the US government. Um, as part of this designation, Treasury announced a 45-day wind-down period beginning on October 8th, uh, which authorizes non-US persons to wind down certain activities and transactions uh, with the Iranian financial sector and those institutions that were sanctioned on October 8th. That wind-down period is set to expire on November 22nd, so a key date there. Um, additionally, to allow licensed transactions and activities with Iran to continue uninterrupted, uh, the Treasury uh, Department concurrently issued General License L, uh, which maintains existing authorizations and exceptions under the Iran Transactions and Sanctions Regulations, or ITSER, uh, and provided guidance extending them to non-US persons. Uh, Treasury also issued guidance stating that uh, certain other exports to Iran are permitted to continue, including goods and services that protect life, health, and safety of the Iranian population, uh, as well as infant and childcare items for use in Iran. Uh, Treasury anticipa anticipates issuing further guidance uh, regarding the scope of transactions uh, and the activity by non-US persons that will become sanctionable on November 22nd when the wind down period ends. So let me, let me just interrupt you if I may. Please, yeah. We're eager to hear on, uh, about Venezuela as well, but let me bring in Mark, uh, the CEO of Columbia Ship Management, if, if I may, and Mark, can you just briefly give us your perspective on some of the concerns you've got, whether it's with Iran or Venezuela sanctions uh, operating uh, the fleet of vessels that you manage? Thanks, John. And uh, interesting to to hear Joshua, of course. Look, I mean, I think Joshua started by um, quite correctly saying that sanctions, any sanctions are not taken lightly. Um, I think we all appreciate the, the difficulty for um, ship operators or ship managers uh, operating in a very international space is this extraterritoriality of US sanctions. And uh, when does uh, when do those sanctions impact on all of the players in in this particular sector? And I mean, from the point of facilitation, uh, etc. Uh, I, I think also what what is difficult is that uh, you know as we're operating in a global uh, sector, uh, an international sector, and the politics that we're seeing are becoming uh, perhaps ever increasingly national. Uh, in focus and and that makes it very very uh, difficult we have uh, here at columbia we have a huge department huge resource devoted purely to uh, ensuring that that we and our clients act within the widest scope of uh, sanctions and that's all well and good for columbia but i but i do uh, I am concerned about some of the smaller operators that perhaps don't have that scale and that ability uh, and therefore perhaps have to seek uh, advice from your good selves, John, or, or whoever that might be for each and every transaction that they, they partake in. And not always very clear, uh, I have to say, the advice that we do get for all good reasons, having been a lawyer myself, 
lawyers can't be 100% certain of uh, the position that OFAC or uh, the sanctions take uh, when they give the advice or immediately after because it is such a fast changing landscape. So, you know, as, as ever, shipping has to roll with the punches that are thrown to it. And we are, we do deal with sanctions. And I think we're, we're well versed in that now. But the, the, the speed within which these sanctions and the effect of the sanctions and the bite of the sanctions change um, is becoming increasingly difficult to deal with. But I start, I finish where I start, I fully appreciate that uh, any sanctions are not, uh, are not taken lightly and there is clearly uh, a need for them uh, when they are imposed. Mike Salt, thanks, thanks Mark. Mike Salthouse, uh, as chair of the sanctions committee for the international group, which represents some 90% of the ship owners across the globe, uh, in the insurance market. Could you, could you explain, Mike, or tell us what keeps you up at night? What are some of the concerns <laughs> on Venezuela and Iran that, that you have? Sure. Uh, thanks. Thanks, John. Um, I think I'd echo a lot of what Mark's just said. Um, in terms of Iran, my, my key concern as uh, a non-US uh, based uh, insurer is the blocking regulation. Um, and that's really for two reasons. Um, but because really, because as things stands with the blocking regulation, potentially as a UK company, I commit a criminal offence, face a fine, I face imprisonment if I obey US secondary sanctions reintroduced following the withdrawal of the JCPOA. Um, and, you know, if I, if I don't follow those US sanctions, then the US um, uh, potentially puts us out of business. Um, and in a heavily regulated financial services industry, that, that contradiction, it makes it impossible to build credible compliance uh, procedures. The second reason why um, the blocking regulation uh, concerns me uh, is because this, this, this conflict that's articulated by the block, blocking regulation foreshadows um, um, really a, a much wider conflict in, in sanctions that I think is likely to come. I mean, let's not beat about the bush. US secondary sanctions are at best, at best alienate allies and at worst provoke retaliation as we saw with the blocking regulation. And I think the question I'd probably pose to Joshua is, is how long before we start to see counter sanctions from China, uh, not just the EU, that really make it very difficult um, for any ship um, operator, anybody in the marine insurance industry, anybody in the maritime industry um, to continue to trade. And that doesn't really matter whether you're subject to US primary or, or, or secondary sanctions. Um, that is really the natural consequence of the current US-Iran uh, sanctions policy. And it's gonna make it extraordinarily difficult for the global maritime industry when, when, that, when that happens. Um, you asked about Venezuela. A key concern here really is the lack of clarity surrounding US law and policy. You can't, again, build good compliance procedures around inconsistent application of the law. Um, now, and, you know, it may well be consistent from, from Josh's standpoint, but from, from us uh, here for ship owners who are, who are trying to work out what the uh, policy and the law actually means, it's, it's very difficult. The current mechanism in which ship owners seek US legal advice on each trade they do to Venezuela you have a US attorney having a nice cozy one-to-one -one chat with government officials, it really doesn't work. And we saw that from the summer round of designations and those that took place last April. April. None of those ship owners, um, I believe, actually thought they were breaking US sanctions at the point of uh, designation. So that, those are really my, my concerns, um, John. Thanks, Mike. Uh, Josh, a few minutes uh, rebuttal or clarification or any comments you wanted to make uh, on Venezuela? Yeah, sure. Um, I actually might start um, just with uh, going back to some of the comments that were made by uh, uh, Mark and Mike. Um, and, and again, you know, we, we recognize how complex the, 
sanctions environment has become. And I think the uh, incredible strain that that puts on, um, you know, all parties that are involved in, in the shipping industry throughout the world. Um, sanctions from the U.S. perspective, the imposition of sanctions from the U.S. perspective, from our standpoint, are always a last resort. And so to the degree that we can continue working with the maritime industry writ large when we've identified illicit behavior that's ongoing, um, you know, we, we, we strive to do that at all uh, stages, whether it's with the insurance providers, the classification societies, the flag registries, the ship operators and managers themselves. We don't just move to sanctions imposition as step one. Uh, there is generally uh, uh, pretty uh, extensive engagement that takes place to try to stem the tide of whatever illicit activity may be going on uh, with respect to certain shipments that are on the water. And we will continue that trend. Um, it, the US government does not set international maritime policy by any stretch, um, but we do ask that the international maritime you know, sector really take a look at some of the quality control checks and risk compliance checks that are within the industry at large. I think that there's a lot more that can be done in terms of data sharing between classification societies, flag registries, insurance providers, so that when bad actors are identified, they're identified to the larger industry and, and not isolated within that one particular stance. So you can't have flag shopping or insurance shopping or other types of activities that go on. Um, so there's, there's no question that there's work yet to be done there, but um, we do not move or try to move to in, uh, immediately sanction certain entities. Um, rather, we'll continue through the engagement route. On Venezuela, um, it, yes, the, the, the policy environment of Venezuela is complicated and it is changing rapidly. A lot of that is driven by the actions of the illegitimate Maduro regime and their continued relationships that they're promoting with Iran, Russia, other actors throughout the world. And you can expect to see both sanctions as one tool of foreign policy to reach kind of the democratic goals that we've outlined for Venezuela. There are many others. Those will continue to shift, but by and large, we have put fairly robust sanctions um, on uh, the Venezuelan oil economy and some of their other large uh, actors. And so any transactions that deal with PDVSA or uh, that, that really um, kind of implicate any of the petroleum, refined petroleum products, other types of trade that have been going on with Venezuela, they do run a severe risks of sanctions. And we would ask that the international uh, uh, actors that are involved in trade with Venezuela really uh, take that to heart and look at the transactions that they're looking to do to ensure that in no way, shape or form are they transacting with the Maduro government or PDVSA or any other sanctioned actor that's there. Both OFAC and the United States uh, Department of State, uh, we will continue to work directly with uh, international actors as much as we can to answer the questions to ensure that you understand how the sanctions policy is evolving and where kind of those risk compliance limits are left and right, uh, what those changes are so that, so that international organizations don't run afoul of, of US sanctions unintentionally. That being said, there are actors out there that are flouting U.S. sanctions policy towards Venezuela, and we won't hesitate to exercise uh, those sanctions in order to really stop the Maduro regime from, from continuing to get the funds that it needs and put in place those quite dangerous agreements with Iran, Russia, and others in terms of potential arms trade and other types of trade 
um, that are bringing weapons into the Venezuelan environment. Thanks, Josh. Mike, uh, before we head into the crew repatriation issue, any quick comments, Mike Salthouse, uh, that you want to conclude? Yeah, with? Th 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 thanks, uh, John. What, one, um, I'll just pick up on there, Josh, and th thanks for your, your full explanation. Um, this relates to sort of data sharing. And I think um, I, did, I did a little bit of homework before I came here. I think the, um, the north of England, if you take it as a, as a typical P&I club, has um, has cancelled nine fleets, 140 vessels, $7.5 million worth of premium annually um, since, um, uh, since sanctions uh, began. And of course, the cumulative effect of, that, of not getting that for the last 10 years has been, has been quite profound. Now, of, of those, those fleets that we cancel, we don't really know what they're up to. We, we are uncomfortable with their activity. Um, they may have lied to us. They may have disguised it to us. But to, to get to the next step, and I think this is the, the difficulty that industry has, um, whether you're a, sh a ship owner who's, who's been ordered to engage in an STS and there's not an, incom there's an incomplete AIS record, or you're, you're an insurance company that's scratching its head about somebody who keeps switching its AIS off, and off the coast of Iran. You don't know they're breaking sanctions. You don't like what they're doing. They don't give you a credible explanation. So we, uh, we part company and, and, and the ship owner has to wrestle with a, a charter party which, uh, which will not allow him to refuse that order to do that STS simply because there's an incomplete AIS record uh, um, from the, the, the uh, providing ship. Um, and, and sharing information um, is um, inappropriate in those circumstances. You know, if, if, if we go around saying, well, we think that vessel's breaking sanctions, that is the kiss of death for an owner who may well not be breaking sanctions. Um, and leaving aside the legal constraints under which we operate, and, and competition law would, would probably prevent us from doing that. You know, the, these are really, I think, if I, if I can be so bold, slightly unrealistic expectations from, from the US that, that, that information based on suspicion can be thrown around in the public domain and, and parties can act on it. Because as we found really when the US goes out to flag state or, or registries and make suggestions that, that perhaps vessels might, might have broken sanctions, that, the consequences of that, the overcompliance that then results from it, puts those you know, businesses, essentially prevents them from trading for a, for a significant period of time until they can uh, either address the concerns or possibly puts them out of business for, for good. You know, you have created a, a, um, an environment where overcompliance is the norm and the mere suggestion that someone's breaking sanctions means that nobody will, will touch um, that particular ship, operator, company, uh, whatever else. And I think that's a that's a real problem and uh, something that uh, you know I'd, I'd, I'd very much hope we can collectively address over the next uh, year or so. Okay, Bud Dar, MSC. We've got 400,000 plus crew stuck at sea by sub counts. The crew crisis for repatriating during the pandemic has been a matter that you've been wrestling with at MSC. Could you give us some insight on what your latest uh, perspective is on that, please? Sure, John, and it, it came in two different varieties for us in the cruise side of our business where we basically went from, you know, not being able to add capacity quickly enough to being completely shut down as an industry. In our company alone, in our 17 ships, uh, once we shut down operations in March, um, I will say we've restarted on a very limited basis um, in, in the month of August here, but when we shut down, we had to repatriate um, roughly 18,000 out of 19,000 seafarers that were on those ships. Now, those weren't necessarily bringing crew in, so it technically wasn't a crew change. But 
it was shocking to me how many countries we face that would not allow their own citizens to return home and return home at a time of crisis when they were worried about their own families and, um, and, and by the way, losing their jobs too, because there was no work for them to do. Uh, it was just a really, really heartbreaking task to uh, ride this roller coaster with them as you know, we were trying to find borders that would be open and flights that would be available. Uh, we managed to get about 16,500 sent home in the first month or so. Um, so we did better than most and in part because we just felt like we could see where this was headed. On the cargo side of our business, um, it, it's different because the cargo kept moving, um, the trade patterns changed, and we had to adapt our network pretty quickly, which, you know, thankfully we did. But you still reached a point pretty quickly where you had seafarers that were staying on board just too long. You know, even, even if they were willing to stay beyond their contracts, uh, finding a place where you could get them off and have the miracle come together, which seemed like a minor miracle, and it still does in some places right now, of being able to simultaneously have their re relief arrive and be able um, to board is just an immense challenge. And we've done things uh, like, you know, reroute ships for um, the purpose of, of repatriation. We've, you know, charter our own flights. We've bundled together with others to charter flights. Uh, but we're still facing an environment where even when you're talking about nationals from a particular country, they are facing border restrictions in their own homes, which is just, it, it's incomprehensible to me uh, under, under normal circumstances. But when you talk about seafarers who are this unique category of critical workers, I think it was particularly shocking. And I do thank the, the IMO Secretary General, the ILO Director General, and the UN Secretary General on two different occasions, which you know, really for this issue to get that kind of attention from the UN Secretary General, I think is great. But at the end of the day, these are sovereign issues to governments. And I don't think it's moved the needle that much. It's still really decisions you've got to take with governments case by case. And sometimes the tightrope you have to walk to follow all the requirements are nearly impossible. So for example, if a visa is required to travel and join a ship, well, the consulates are closed in many, many places where you just can't even get that visa and it becomes an illusory sort of, of, of promise. So we're still working at it. I do see some encouraging signs. China um, has started to open up a little bit and, um, and I encourage the move that they made. I hope that that keeps going. Um, but we really all need to pull together on this. Like I said, at present, about 400,000, I think you're right, are awaiting crew changes of repatriation. Um, these people have done us an enormous service as society um, when we were struggling with this pandemic. We need to keep them in their hearts, in our hearts, and we need to take action to keep the pressure on, to treat them humanely and with the justice that they deserve here, and then bring them back to work when they're ready to come back to work because they are so critical to our industry, and I think about them every single day. Thanks, Bud. Eddie Valentis, have you seen, how have you been dealing with the crew crisis uh, as an owner of product tankers? And have you seen fatigue as a factor? I think you're on mute. Yeah, let me unmute. <laughs> Thank you, John. Uh, it's not only product tankers, I will speak as a ship owner because we also operate dry bulk. So uh, um, it's a general question for ship owners. And uh, as Bud described it, I, said, I think Bud said it all, uh, roller coaster. It's been a crazy uh, time the last uh, seven, eight months. And uh, um, I'm 
the only thing I have to say is that as owners, we are trying our best. It's not um, that we are trying to cut corners as it has been implied by various associations. Uh, it is our priority to change crew at whichever uh, jurisdiction we can, we can. Unfortunately, these things change every day. And I'm sure you know that uh, one port is open today for crew changes and the next day it's not. Uh, we do our best to divert our vessels whenever they, they are in the area in uh, um, places that can do this sort of uh, crew changes. Uh, unfortunately, it's not uh, possible because as, as I said, uh, ports open and close from time to time. The cost element also has been significant. Uh, the cost element for changing crew is a variable which you cannot estimate any longer. Um, you know that there has been a lot of waiting time for crews. There has been a lot of change of flights and the crew needs to wait, waiting times. There have been a lot of testing. Um, so it's a, it's a difficult uh, situation. We do not know how it will evolve, especially now that the second wave of the pandemic is coming. So it's generally uncharted territory, but as owners, I have to tell you again, because we've, we've heard a lot, we're trying to do our best. It is in our best interest. It's in our safety interest to have our crew relieved whenever we can. Thank you, Eddie. Mark O'Neill, do you see a resiliency or an agility in the shipping industry in dealing with this crisis? Yeah, thanks, John. I, I mean, just, just picking up on, uh, on some of what uh, Eddie and Bud have said there, I, I mean, I think we're judging this whole crew rotation issue against uh, a false background or, or, or false context. We are in a, a, a hugely abnormal uh, situation. I previously described it as a, a, a wartime situation and we have to judge our efforts to rotate crew and look after crew in that context, not in the norm. Is it uh, reasonable for a crew member who is normally on a six month contract to be rotated in this situation on, on, on every six months? Of course it's not. And, and the problem here, uh, I feel, is that everyone is jumping onto this crew rotation bandwagon and not actually treating our crew as intelligent human beings. We found out, and we've, we've invested huge time and effort and money in this, we found out that the crew up until now have felt themselves a, a completely invisible uh, sector in uh, in worldwide in worldwide trade and, and and industry you know nobody even thought about the crew outside of shipping uh, until now and of course what now they're, they're making headlines everywhere if we start to identify with them if we start to communicate with them if we start treating them like normal human beings uh, uh, by considering their their mental health their benefits you know their pension provisions and their life assurance etc if we give them the best food that we possibly can if we look at their training and if we give them wi-fi then in our experience the crew are very happy to be on a safe ship being looked after and inverted commas seen by their uh, employers and by the world at large and i've got to say that uh, and i'm sure uh, like most other 
blue chip professional operators, the crew on board our vessels, the morale has never been higher. Uh, and so when I read that 400,000 crew out of a, a, a total crew workforce of 1.5 million are um, desperate and, and uh, uh, in need of X, Y, Z, I, I just don't see that. I see that as a, a, a problem of their employers, not a problem of uh, the industry at large or of the crew themselves. So, I, you know, I think I don't think the problem is as large uh, as, as we make out. We are going into the second wave now, uh, which will be, I think, longer and more brutal than the first wave. And it's all about resilience and it's all about communication and identification. And yes, huge costs. As I say, I, I sympathize with Eddie. You know, we bear the same huge costs. Um, but the number of crew in our pool of 15,000 who have uh, gone over their contracts is 70. Uh, and, and we are getting that down day by day. And I think good operators are, are spending huge amounts of money, time and effort. And we shouldn't forget the, 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 the staff in this business ashore. The real stress, uh, a huge stress is ashore in putting together this huge logistical nightmare to rotate these crews against the backdrop of changes in, in rules and regulations by the minute. Um, you know, we can't even talk. We would be wasting our breath now to look at what the uh, situation is in Singapore, or in China or in the Philippines, because it is changing literally uh, uh, by the minute. So uh, I think the industry has shown itself to be an amazingly flexible, amazingly, amazingly uh, resilient. And I think everybody involved in the industry, crew, shoreside, operators, owners, managers should be incredibly proud of themselves. Thanks, Mark. Bud, I, we're, we've been ambitious in this panel uh, on the topics we're trying to cover, and we're getting short on time. I'd like to leave time for a lightning round for each panelist to comment uh, further, but could you just say a word on your experience with the trade tariffs during the pandemic? Any, any comments you wanted to just bring to our audience there? Sure. I, I think that um, the confluence of events there um, probably um, exacerbated a little bit the effects that we saw that when it was time uh, for things to shut down uh, first over the holidays and then as China shut down during the pandemic it probably happened faster and harder um, but in the end I, I really think where we got to was largely disconnected with the sanctions because we did see uh, an acceleration of what was already a progression that was happening, which was that some of the manufacturing was moving out of China anyway to other places in Southeast Asia. So I think us as a carrier, I think what we had to do was just adapt our networks, be ready for it. And it was kind of like squeezing a balloon because as, as was described earlier, you know, we originally had production shut down in China, but then as the pandemic progressed, um, we had various demand slowdowns in other markets, and then it came back again. And then we had the very odd dynamic that we actually had some shippers that were, you know, asking us to hold on to their cargo longer. Um, that's something we're not used to every day, and we found methods um, um, to do that. Um, but in the end, I think the current level of the trade sanctions with China in particular um, are not the driving factor in, in the market, but rather it's more uh, fundamental supply and demand that's more market driven. You know, that could certainly change. Um, but at present, uh, we do seem to be able to adapt pretty well as an industry. Great. When we uh, go into a lightning round here of uh, final comments, and while we do, uh, there are some questions we have from the audience. Uh, and uh, generally, 
relate to questions for Josh Mader in terms of to what degree of due diligence are ship owning uh, ship owners or operators expected to uh, conduct to look behind the companies and and find out who what individuals may be involved behind different companies. So, Josh, maybe you can address that in your closing remarks about whether it's a risk-based approach or what that means. Eddie, why don't you kick us off here? Uh, any final thoughts on uh, particularly on the crew repatriation or any of the other topics? No, I'm, I'm, I'm very, I'm covered with Mark's optimistic uh, remarks about crew. So I'm, I'm hoping that the situation will uh, eventually sort itself out. Uh, it's been a roller coaster, but it will, uh, uh, gradually it will be uh, normalized, hopefully. Uh, of course, regarding uh, trade wars and uh, trade uh, uh, issues, uh, we are a bit worried about the China-US uh, escalation again, but uh, considering that huge amounts uh, uh, have been bought by China and need to be transported, therefore this is a question mark for us, how this will develop. Uh, of course, let's not forget that during COVID, uh, the demand destruction that we have seen has been substantial and uh, uh, shipping companies are trying. To, okay, uh, out of time. Uh, I'm sorry to cut you sorry. off. Thanks. Uh, about 10 seconds or so from each one of you. Bud Dar, last comment. Uh, been a pleasure being here. Don't disconnect. Um, the idea of environmental taxes potentially being viewed as unilateral taxes that may lead us into the effect of trade sanctions in the future. Mark. I just like to say that shipping will continue to roll with the punches. We'll be here at the end of the first wave. We'll be here at the end of the second wave and, and uh, uh, hoping we'll be here at the end of the third wave too. We'll continue to roll with the punches and like do what spirit, we do each Mark. day. Like that spirit, Mike Salthouse. Yeah, very briefly, um, a plea to all parties who issue sanctions, simplify, clarify, and please adopt a multilateral um, approach. Uh, otherwise, shipping's going to roll to a stop. Thanks. Josh, bring us across the finish line here. Thanks, uh, Mike. I agree. If I was king for a day, we would do that. Um, but uh, for everybody else, I would just urge you to take a look at the, the Global Maritime Advisory that was published uh, by the Treasury Department, State Department, U.S. Coast Guard, and a few others uh, a few months ago. There's a lot of good language there on, on sanctions compliance and, and uh, steps that can be taken throughout the maritime industry. Thanks very much to our panelists. Thanks to all of you for watching. We'll be uh, moving over to the chat room at the conclusion of this panel. And so I see we may have some more questions. And if you would like to address them to the panelists, please feel free to do it in the chat room. Thanks, everyone. That's all we've got. Thank you. Thank you, panelists.